The preaching of the word today is going to come from Genesis 32, 22 through 33, 20. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade.
There, that's me. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 22, and then we go all the way to the end of chapter 33. Let's pray together again. Father in heaven, we are grateful for you gathering us by your sovereign hand and uh, bringing us again to this place of worship. Um, God, we uh, fully admit that this is an unusual gathering to have uh, in the midst of the world in which we live, Uh, and yet you call us to it. And so you have something to, to teach us today. You have something uh, to show us from your word. Um, you have a work to do in all of our hearts. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be here. And so I pray that you would uh, do that work in us, help us to recognize it, um, to be aware of it, um, to, to do whatever it is that you are calling us to do um, because of what you're doing in us. Um, that we would, be just, we would be sensitive to your spirit in that way. So God, I pray that you would teach us now from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you are new with us, um, we have been at the beginning of each year for the past three years making our way through Genesis. So we're on the third part of Genesis is our final kind of uh, final walk through uh, of Genesis for a while. But today we're coming to a part in the, the story where it is the final moments of Jacob's story um, that we've been in since the beginning of the year, of this year. So where we are arriving today, 100 years have passed after Jacob has been born, a whole century later, and we are finally reaching the climax uh, of a place that scholars have said is Jacob's salvation moment, when when he truly comes to understand who he is before a holy God. And if you don't believe it's a salvation moment, maybe you think, well, Jacob was probably already a believer early on in his life. You can at least say it's a uh, his will being broken moment because his will is broken. And this is spiritually significant for Jacob. But it's also something that we saw happen to his father, Isaac, um, back in Genesis chapter 27. So if you remember chapter 27, uh, after realizing that he had been deceived by Jacob and, and taken advantage of by his wife, uh, the narrator, Moses, tells us this, Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Now, Isaac doesn't tremble because he's angry. Isaac trembles because he's, he realizes what he was trying to do, which was to go against God's plan by trying to bless Esau, even though he knew the blessing was to go to Jacob. God breaks the will of Isaac here, and Isaac believes. Because Isaac realizes in that moment that he is not in control, that God is in control, and that God's plans will never be thwarted. They will never be changed. And that's what God does here to Jacob. He breaks his will. So Jacob will finally recognize that it's not him who is in control, but God. John Calvin said, 
man's belief in their own powers is mere smoke. So something that you can see, it's visible to you, but it can't be used in a way that will help you. So Jacob has thought the opposite up until this point. He, he is a self-made man. He is a self-sufficient man. He is, he is a great businessman. He, he knows how to manipulate situations to, to go into his favor. He is grabbing opportunities as they uh, present themselves to him. Every single one of them. And this started when he was born, if you remember. He was born uh, grabbing his brother's heel as they exited the womb. And that's why they called him Jacob, which means he takes the heel or he cheats. He tries to use things for his advantage to get ahead in life, even as a little baby which was, was symbolic of always, always wanting to be first, always trying to get ahead in his own way at all costs. He would even deceive his, his father and his brother to do this. And even Esau, his brother, recognized this after being deceived by Jacob, not once but twice, taking everything that he had from him, says in Genesis 27, 36, is he not rightly named Jacob? Is he not rightly named the one who cheats, the one who deceives? And maybe that's where you are today, thinking that your work or who you are or what you've done gets you ahead in life, it, or, that it, or that it just makes you a good person at least. And, and if you don't think that, some, I mean, even, even some have taken this, this further thinking and believing that it makes you right before God, that somehow God is looking down on you and saying, man, they are, they are really good they do really good things. Um, they gave this much money to that charity. Um, they're doing all of this. They're nice to everybody, even though they might talk behind their back when they're not looking. But they are a really good person, and I want them as my child. But what you must realize is that your own self-sufficiency is also mere smoke. Because, because when, you, when you believe that, that, that it's you who, who can do all these things and make yourself right because you're good or whatever it might be, your misunderstanding lies in the fact that it's God alone who reconciles you. And it's God alone who reconciles you uh, both to himself, but he also reconciles you to other people. And that it's his hand that guides your steps in this. So this is, there's two points that I want us to highlight this morning from this text. One is, and it's broken up perfectly, so your, your headings break it up for you and everything, it does that well. Uh, but one is God reconciles Jacob to himself. So we'll see that happen in verses in 32, 22 through 32. And then in chapter 33, God reconciling Esau to Jacob. So God reconciling Jacob to himself and God reconciling Esau to Jacob. So first, God reconciles Jacob to himself so last week, we left Jacob. when we left Jacob, he was alone. He was alone in the desert, and, and having sent everyone and everything away in his life, Moses makes sure to tell us in verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. He does not want you to miss that detail. There was no one around, no one to depend on, no one to pull him out of this jam. There was no wealth to look at and take comfort in, no one to deceive, 
and no one to take advantage of. Jacob was alone. And this is exactly where God wants him to be. Which is sometimes the place we need to be, isn't it? Alone. Everything stripped away from us. Everything that we care about, everything that we love, everything that we depend on, sometimes just needs to go away. I've seen this in in marriage counseling situations where one spouse has sinned greatly against another spouse and unfortunately is unrepentant about it. And the counsel is for the other spouse to take the kids, if there's kids in the picture, and to leave for a set amount of time so that the sinful spouse can feel the effects of their sin by being alone. So the theory is to push him or her out and away from everything and everyone so that they might be restored. We want there to be reconciliation through this. And so hopefully they recognize their own brokenness uh, by being by themselves, by being alone. Nothing to depend on. So Jacob is here. And it's in this moment an unusual thing happens. Moses tells us, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. I do jiu-jitsu, so there was everything in me that had to stop myself from using any sort of uh, illustration from real life. So that's the only time you're going to hear me mention it. So just in case you're sitting on the edge of your seat waiting for it. But, but this is an unusual uh, thing that happens. Um, Martin Luther, the, the reformer, called this passage one of the most obscure passages in all of the Old Testament. And because of its obscurity, there are a lot of questions and theories around this incident. So some interpret this passage as another dream narrative. If you remember, uh, Jacob had a dream um, where God came to him and spoke to him in chapter 28. So some people interpret this as another dream that Jacob is having. So he wrestles with God, but it's in his dream. Others take a more allegorical approach, so it's a spiritual conflict. So they say that Jacob is in a fight, uh, there's a fight for Jacob's soul between good and between evil. And then others believe it to portray a long and earnest prayer. So they would say Jacob is wrestling with God in prayer. And then there's the critical Bible scholars who have tried to steer this part of the narrative toward an ancient myth. Uh, basically saying that the Bible is fiction, and therefore this story was based on an old myth about a river god uh, named Jabbok who tried to hinder anyone who attempted to cross the river. And so that's what was happening here was Jacob was wrestling with the river god who was trying to stop him from moving across the river. Now, this, this is kind of a side note, but this, this particular line of thinking um, from these critical scholars reminded me of an, of an Instagram post um, I saw a couple of weeks from a church in Raleigh, North Carolina, so right up the street from us, um, that, that was putting on a class that was titled, How to Take the Bible Seriously, But Not Literally. How to Take the Bible Seriously, But Not Literally. So I, I think... Even as we come to, I mean, we've come to some strange, I don't even think this is the strangest. I kind of disagree with Martin Luther. I don't think this is the most perplexing passage in Genesis. We've come to hunters preaching on uh, one that's going to be hard next week, purpose on purpose. I gave it to him on purpose. Um, 
But I think as we do approach strange texts in the scriptures that, that don't really make a lot of sense to us, kind of humanly, kind of earthly speaking, uh, more and more people who call themselves Christian are falling into this kind of error. Where, yeah, they might take the Bible, or the, so they say, take the Bible seriously, but not literally. That somehow we have been reading the Bible wrong all of these years. Now, just a side note, I do believe you can read the Bible wrong. You can read the Bible wrong. But these, these uh, sort of folks who believe this are proposing that now there's this new way to read the Bible, that we have been enlightened by, uh, by the, the learnings from science, and so we include that in our Bible reading and commitments to inclusion and equity and liberation and, and whatever else might be going on in the culture. We are to, uh, as we approach the Bible, to add all of those elements into our reading and our study of the Scriptures, and as you read it, you are interpreting the Bible according to the culture, according to what's happening in our world. So the danger in this is that you are allowing culture to interpret the Bible for you when you should be allowing the Bible to interpret those elements in the culture. To simply take the Bible seriously and not literally is not to believe the Bible at all. We are to take it seriously and literally. And that's what we're seeing in our text today. So on top of all of that, there are many questions that surround this part of Jacob's life as well. Why, why does God fight with Jacob? Why, why was God unable to defeat Jacob? Why is he concerned with daybreak? Why does he change Jacob's name to Israel? Why, why did he strike Jacob's thigh? Why is that significant? So let's delve in here to learn more about what this part of the narrative is saying and what we learn concerning God's reconciling Jacob to himself. Because the main theological point lies in what happens to Jacob when God blesses him at the crossing of the river. And there are, there are, there are a number of implications as to what this point is. So verse 25, right there at the very beginning, may bring up the first question for you, which is, why was God unable to defeat Jacob? If you see that uh, in those verses, verse 24, and Jacob was left alone, and the man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. Now, we know, we know this man to be God that is wrestling with Jacob. Our narrator knows this man to be God. But at this point, right when he's wrestling, Jacob does not know that he is wrestling with God. It is, it is nighttime. He cannot see this person. Uh, so for, for all Jacob knows, uh, it, he is being attacked by a stranger in the night. He is hyper aware of this. He knows he is approaching a great army, so he thinks all sorts of things could be happening right now. So he is in a fight. And so we're seeing this from Jacob's limited perspective here is what Moses, our narrator, is doing. But as you'll see, it's gradually led on to Jacob who he is really grappling with here. This is no mere man that he is wrestling with, but God himself. So this begs the question, if this is God, why is he unable to defeat Jacob? 
And so the first way you have to answer this question is by asking another question. Knowing what is true about God, do you think the God who created the universe, the most powerful being in the universe, could be subdued by a human being? And the answer is no. Even if you don't believe in God, you can kind of suspend your belief for a minute and say, uh, can, can the most powerful being in the world, in the universe, be subdued by a human? You could, everyone in the room could say, probably not. So then we must begin to look at why would God allow himself to be in this situation where he cannot uh, uh, beat Jacob in this fight? There must be something that he wants us to see here, and you would be correct in your assumption. Because obviously the wrestling match, while it is real, is, a symbi- is symbolic of something greater that is happening in the life of Jacob and later in the life of God's people as a whole, as we'll see when he changes Jacob's name. So at this moment of Jacob's life, he is on the edge of the promised land. He is on the verge of entering, and now he is engaged in a battle. So knowing the man to be God, and knowing Jacob to be who he is, being Jacob, and knowing that they are on the cusp of the promised land, tells us that entering that which God has promised is never easy. So the struggle that ensues is symbolic of the struggle to show to show Jacob that it's not Jacob who can enter into this promised land on his own strength, merit, or cleverness, but is only able to do so because God allows him to do so. One commentator wrote, God, who was the real proprietor of the land, the promised land, opposed his entering as Jacob. If it were only a matter of mere strength, then God let him know he would never enter the land. You see, up until this point, this is how Jacob thought life worked. This was his worldview. If I am clever enough, if I am strong enough, then I will get what I want. Or as the poet William Ernest Henley put it in his poem Invictus, right at the end, I am the master of my faith, Fate, I am the captain of my soul. That's been Jacob's heart almost his entire life. And what Jacob doesn't realize, as another commentator pointed out, is that the blessings of God come by God's gracious and powerful provisions, not by mere physical strength and craftiness. This is actually not how life works. And I think every one of us, whether you are a Christian or not, knows that to be true. That you reach a point in your own self-sufficiency where you are frustrated. Where you feel like, I I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels and I'm getting nowhere. And that is your self-sufficiency coming to the surface. Showing you that that it is impossible to do anything based solely upon yourself. It's where you get to this moment where your self-sufficiency is exposed for what it it really is, mere smoke. And Jacob realizes this in verse 25 when God physically disables him with a touch, reminding Jacob of his own inability to enter into God's promises. 
And this is a really important truth, a really important act that God does here when he simply touches Jacob's thigh. And I know it says touches there, but it's actually a more violent act that happened there that God did to Jacob to, to, uh, to handicap him. But this is an important truth, and the, the text tells us in verse 32 this, Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. And so this act that happens to Jacob, God's people carry it into their life. It's not because it's unclean there, but, they, but it's, it's, a, it's a moment in the story of God within the people of God that they want to remember because they need to, to, to understand and remember all of their life that they are dependent upon God. That they are not dependent upon themselves, but they are dependent upon their God. If you recall, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament had a, had a uh, I believe, a similar type of ailment that reminded him of this. Um, before Paul came to faith in Christ, uh, he too was a self-made man, a self-sufficient person. He even describes how he used to be in Galatians chapter 1. He says, "'For you have heard of my former life in Judaism.'" Now I persecuted, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And Paul is saying that in Judaism, this was my merits. My works were my merit. My self-sufficiency was what made me who I was. But later, after Jesus saves him from himself and reconciles him to God, Paul as well, used to be named Saul, is given a new name by God the Son. And then also what he calls, what Paul calls, a thorn in the flesh. So some believe this thorn to be that his eyesight never fully recovered after being blinded uh, by Jesus on the road to Emmaus. I think that's a great theory uh, based on some other things in, that Paul says in his letters. Um, but nonetheless, he had some sort of physical ailment that bothered him the entirety of his life. And this is what Paul says concerning this thorn in 2 Corinthians 12. Speaking about it. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so the principle to hear in this, in Paul and in Jacob's life, is that God must change you in order for you to enter into his promises. God must do that work, not you. St. Augustine, I read uh, this prayer by St. Augustine this morning in my devotionals. He, he prayed, but you, speaking to God, but you led me out of my blindness. You took me by the hand and you 
called me to yourself. You did all this, God, not me. And this is not a this is because this is not a place we get to on our own. And we see that in the wrestling match, but we also see it in the name that God changes Jacob's name to in verse 28. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Now, we've talked about names before. Nowadays, we don't really give much stock to giving our children's names that have meanings. But in Jacob's day, it communicated a lot. And it's, and it's in this instance, it is communicating a massive truth about God and his work. Like I said earlier, uh, Jacob's name actually means heel grabber or he cheats, which is kind of an unfortunate name to, to give your child. Um, you're like setting them up for failure, but God is sovereign even over the name giving as well because it's a name that contrasts the name that God gives to him, which is Israel, which means God contends or may God contend. God contends, or may God contend. Do you see the contrast? Jacob essentially meant, his name meant, I will do it. I can do it. Self-sufficiency. Israel meant, God has done it, and God will continue to do it. And it's interesting to see what process Jacob had to go through to receive this name. So not only does he have to wrestle with God, which is already hard enough, but he also has to confess who he is before God. So in verses 26 through 27, Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered, which seems like a pointless part of this narrative. Like, why? I mean, why, why is there this name exchange? Um, did God forget his name or, or whatever it might be? But, but Jacob is asking God to bless him. But before he does this, this is what God has to ask him. And it's not because God has forgotten who Jacob is. Like, oh, man, let me make sure I am wrestling with the right person here. But it's a chance for Jacob to confess his own inability and sinfulness before a holy God. Because to say, my name is Jacob, is to confess before God that I am a self-sufficient cheater and deceiver and liar from birth. I have not depended on God for what I need, and I have not looked to him for my salvation. That is what Jacob is confessing when he says his name. The gospel reality here is that self-sufficient Jacob could not enter the land promised to him until God changed his name and God changes his character to Israel which is now a person who strives with God for his blessing, a person who relies on God for everything in his life. And as God says this to Israel, 
as a person and as a people, because Israel as a people, as a nation, would read these words and they would, they would be applying themselves into this story. They would be inserting themselves into the story because it's speaking to them as well. But God is saying to Israel that only those who rely on him will enter the promised land. And so Jesus says that only those who rely on God will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in Luke 18, 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So in other words, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God in humble dependence, because that's what it means to be like a child, in humble dependence will never enter the kingdom. And this takes place the same way it took place with Jacob. Confessing who you are before a holy God, so you are and we are a sinner in, in sinners in need of grace every single day of our life. And then relying on God to change who you are and to bring you all the way home to the kingdom. Will you trust Christ to do that today? If that's where you find yourself. And maybe you, maybe, maybe you aren't a Christian and so that question is, will you trust Christ today as your Lord and Savior but also if you are a Christian and you find yourself in, 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 in that confusing uh, part of life where you are dependent upon yourself. I know I fall into that category a lot. So will you trust Christ today to do that? Or will you continue grasping the smoke of your own self-sufficiency? So God reconciles us to himself. But he also reconciles us to each other. Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 5 that God is at work today reconciling the world to himself. And Jesus taught in Matthew 5 that we should be reconciled to each other. And that is what we now see with Esau and Jacob in chapter 33, verses 1 through 20. So in verse 1 of chapter 33, the moment of truth has arrived. Esau and his 400 men roll up on Jacob, who is still alone. And this had to be some sight to see. It had to be actually quite terrifying. The last time Jacob saw his brother and knew about his brother was before his deceit of their father. And then he deceives his father and his brother. And the last thing he hears about Jacob is that he wants to murder his brother. And so Jacob fled. But now Jacob has nowhere to flee. He is surrounded and drastically outnumbered. There is absolutely nothing this man can do. And the only thing he knows to do is bow before his brother in humility. So instead of walking towards Esau, he essentially crawls towards his brother to make himself as low as he possibly can, to communicate to his brother that he was no threat to him whatsoever. But it also communicated that he was repentant and that he was sorry. And you also, you also notice in Jacob's interaction with Esau is that he still refers to him as, 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 as a servant. He refers to himself as, I'm your servant to Esau. And he also refers to Esau still as, my Lord. So we know from last week's sermon that he was doing that in a way to kind of pacify 
Esau to, to, to almost to kind of give back the blessing a little bit. Like, I know I'm actually your servant. You're not my servant to kind of pacify the threat. But at this point, Jacob is no longer trying to make right what he has made wrong because he now realizes he can't do anything to atone for his sins. There's nothing that he can do. He no longer is trying to make up for what he has done, but he is a repentant man because he recognizes God's work in his life. He even affirms this to Esau when he says in verse 11, when they're going back and forth about giving gifts and things like that, but he, Jacob says to Esau, uh, God has dealt graciously with me. This is, this, is a, this is a change, man, because this man is using different language. Jacob did not use this sort of language before God broke him in the wrestling match. God has dealt graciously with me. God has given me everything that I need. God has brought me back to the land of promise. So this time, Jacob isn't looking to deceive, but Jacob is looking to reconcile. And if you recall, back in Genesis chapter 32, verse 11, uh, this is Jacob's prayer. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. And whether Jacob at that point in time was kind of praying that somewhat selfishly or whatever it may have been, God is answering that prayer. The first is in an act of what can only be concluded as God's mercy and love towards Jacob. Verse 4 says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. You have to understand how, how mass, I don't, think we, I don't think any of us are in that sort of relationship with a sibling. At least I hope not. Where your sibling has threatened to murder you and you, have, you, have, you, 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 know, you, you left home and you moved to Augusta, Georgia to hide out for a while or whatever it might be. Um, none of you have been in that situation. Jacob has been. Jacob, for all intents and purposes, thought this was the end of his life. He was thinking Esau has absolutely no reason to forgive me. There is nothing. I deserve death. And instead, Esau embraces him. I mean, so the guy, he's on the ground, crawling towards his brother. Esau probably has to scoop him up to do this. And so that's, that's the first answer to prayer. And Jacob describes it to Esau like this in verse 10, which is beautiful. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. I mean, Jacob has just seen the face of God. So that's a massive compliment to his brother. And so essentially what Jacob is saying to Esau is, God has restored our relationship. You have been gracious and merciful towards me, Esau. And I am seeing the grace and mercy of God in that. So that's the first way we see an answer to prayer. And the second indication of God answering Jacob's prayer is a specific answer in verse 18 when our narrator tells us, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, the promised land, and on, on his way from Padam Aram, and he camped before the city. Jacob has made it safely home. Esau hasn't harmed him. His uncle never harmed him. He is safe at home. 
So the second answer to prayer. The third way we see this prayer answered is in the name that Jacob gives to the land that he settled in verses 19 through 20. Remember, names are significant in the Bible. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent, which is very similar to what his grandfather Abraham did when he bought land to bury his wife. And it says here, There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. So two things to see here. One is that Jacob built an altar. We have not seen an altar built since his father built one in chapter 26, which was over 100 years ago. And then before that, Abraham, his grandfather, was building, I mean, he was building altars like all over the place, worshiping, the, worshiping God. This is the first time that Jacob does this. So like his grandfather and like his father, he builds an altar. And this is significant because an altar represents uh, the person who's building it. It represents them acknowledging that God is at work in their midst. And so they immediately build an altar in that place. And it also shows us that it is a place of worship. That, That Jacob has now gotten to a point where he He is a worshiper of God. That the God of Abraham, that the God of Isaac is also Jacob's God. And then the second thing to see is the name that Jacob gives this land where he pitched his tent, where he calls it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. God, the God of Israel. Jacob is affirming not only his belief in God, but also the people's belief in God. Because now there is going to be a people named Israel. God, the God of Israel. That that the same God that is the God of Jacob will be the God of his people. So Jacob is affirming the promise, not only to himself to say, this God is my God, but also to future generations, that this God will also be the God of my people. That the same God who was with him, the same God who delivered him, the same God who, who reconciles him is the same God who would be with his people, who would deliver his people, and who would reconcile his people. And we now know that to be true in Christ, don't we? Who is with us, who delivers us, and who reconciles us back to our great God and to others. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, help us as a people to see the folly and insignificance of being self-sufficient, that we would see it as mere smoke. God, I pray that each person in this room would know the power and reality of your reconciling work, that it is you alone who works this great work in our life, reconciling uh, us back to you in Christ but also reconciling us to each other. And so, God, I pray that as a church, um, that would be what defines us, that it wouldn't be programs, it wouldn't be um, a person, it wouldn't be music, 
but it would be that we are a community that knows that we are reconciled by God and that we are reconciled to each other as, as a body. So I pray that that would happen in our midst. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.